Let's open our Bibles. What I didn't realize, last um, time I taught here, we did chapter 9. I thought we had done chapter 8, but we did not. And so my goal tonight is to go back and go over chapter 8. We did chapter 9, but I really want to get through 10 and 11 also. And I think it's doable. And um, let's begin... Uh, in order to understand chapter 8, I have to give you a little bit of background on chapter 7. If you go back to chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 3 talks about the question of fasting and their motive. 4 through 6, the Lord rebukes them. He's hardening them for their hypocrisy. Uh, and then in 8 through 10... Uh, they need to repent for their disobedience. Remember, refresh your memory a little bit what Zechariah is doing here. Uh, the first part of Zechariah, um, they come back from Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem is in shambles. People start building their own home. They start building the temple, but they get discouraged and they quit. And then they pick it up again, they start building. Um, Roughly 50,000 people came back from Babylon. Many of them stayed in Babylon. But basically, he's challenging them not to repeat the mistakes that their father made that put him in Babylon in the first place for 70 years. So much of what's going on here is Zechariah encouraging these people, but there's times also where he's disciplined disciplining them because they were doing outward acts of religion but the heart wasn't right. So we need to understand that about chapter 7 before we can go into chapter 8 because as we get into chapter 8 it's sort of the the flip side of it. In chapter 8 is God's um, explanation to the people concerning their question. We've gone through the ritual and the liturgy. Why haven't you blessed us? His first answer was, when the heart is right, the ritual is right. His second answer was that when the heart is wrong, the ritual is wrong. In other words, the ritual doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the heart that's important. So back in chapter 7, he's rebuking them because they were outwardly doing um, deeds, but their heart wasn't in the right place. And it's sort of in the negative, and it's a really strong rebuke. Chapter 8 is completely different because now he's going to minister to them more in a spirit of grace. He's going to point ahead of what he's going to do uh, in the kingdom age. So we've got to tie 7 and 8 together. They're um, words of rebuke, but now... He has these words of encouragement. So let's pick up. We're going to read the first five verses that actually speak about, and we're going to, uh, this portion, now the temple is finished. They've rebuilt it. And now he wants to point them to another temple that's going to be built in another time that is yet future, and it's still future to us. So the first Five verses of Zechariah chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. 
I am jealous for her, thus says the Lord. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. For thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand. Because of great age, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls um, playing in the streets. We're now jumping into um, speaking of the 1,000-year millennial reign. And um, we're going to be seeing it coming uh, several times as we make a distinction between that and them going into captivity when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But these first verses here um, speak of the kingdom age and uh, old men will be um, just sitting on their, you know, bench posts and uh, um, they'll be in Jerusalem. Uh, They'll be of great age. Kids will be playing in the streets. And picking it up now in verses six, I'm gonna read all the way through 17 and then come back and comment on, on certain verses. So verse six, for thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? For thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hand be strong. Uh, You have been hearing in these days. Now he's leaving off talking about the millennium and now he's talking to them directly, the people that Zechariah is ministering to, that he has brought them back, brought them back from where? Brought them back from Babylon, and he's ministering to them. He says, I ministered to you these words by the words of the prophets, Um, and what we have in view here and who he's referring to is Zechariah and Haggai, who were in the day that the foundation was laid. So remember when they came back, they started building the temple. The foundation was laid. And the prophets that were encouraging them, the words of the the mouth of the prophets, he's referring to Zechariah and Haggai, uh, for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. Now the temple that we're referring to here is the one that they're rebuilding as they're coming back from Babylon. They get discouraged, they quit They get encouraged by Zechariah and Haggai. They finish the job. Um, For before these days, what days? Before they came back and they were in that discouraged state of mind, it says there was no wages for man for any hire for beast. Now just think this through. You come back to a city that's completely in ruin. Um, you don't go to the barbershop. You don't go to the grocery store. There's, it's simply not there. What this is saying here, there, there was no man to pay wages. You didn't have a job. 
you were coming back to a city that's been decimated. And so this verse right here, there was no wages for man nor a hire for a beast. And you can just imagine the despair that many of them were in because of it. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. Now he's talking to them in, how can I say it, in the most positive ways of trying to encourage a very discouraged people by telling them what the Lord is going to do. And there's applications galore as we think about what's going on in our own um, country today and what's going on in the world. And um, I got this guy, Judy and I went out uh, for lunch today. Um, And as we're leaving, um, I watched this guy sitting at a table. Had no food in front of him. Didn't have a drink in front of him. But the expression in his body language was so much of despair and despond. He was in such a um, deplorable mood. It was all over his body language. I can't get this guy's face out of my head. What I know, he didn't know the Lord, number one. He didn't know why. Who knows, maybe he, his business just went under. So many people are living from paycheck to paycheck today. And, uh, but they're not getting a paycheck now. I saw the same thing on a 19-year-old kid, um, 20-year-old kid, just, just this last week. And he was walking down the street that I live on in Kakana. And he looked so depressed and down. I mean, every part of his body language was just completely despondent and, and in, in despair. And as we were leaving um, the restaurant today, I looked at this guy and my, your heart goes out to him um, because there's absolutely no hope. There was a picture on his face of, I have no hope. And he was just looking straight ahead. And there's a lot of people that are, are in that state of mind. And um, um, we've got a lot to be grateful for, you know, that we can um, fellowship, come to church, we can worship. And um, even though some of you are going through difficult times also, um, we at least have this. Good place for an amen. And how important it is to have the fellowship of the saints, to be able to get up and and sing and worship. Chapter 8 is basically Haggai and Zechariah trying to encourage these people that were hopeless. So left off in verse... um, were they were despondent because nobody could buy or sell because there was no businesses that were actually open. Um, and then we read verse 11. For the seed shall be prosperous. Now he's talking about their future. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. And the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things, and it will come to pass that just as you are a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong, 
for thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I was determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. All right, what's he talking about here? Again, before they went into captivity, the prophets, namely Jeremiah, that was his only message, um, you've rebelled against the Lord. As a result, God's going to discipline you. He's going to use the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as his instrument, and you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Get used to it. All the false prophets were saying just the opposite. How would God ever do a thing like that? Destroy Solomon's temple? No way. And so they were disobedient, so the Lord took them into captivity. So when we read in verse 14, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good. What I did bad for them because of their disobedience, I'm going to turn around now. And I'm going to give you a hope. And I'm going to tell you what it's going to be like. Because things are going to get better from here on out. As far as I'm determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your hearts against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath, for all these things I hate, says the Lord. Chapter 7 was about their hypocrisy. Uh, Chapter 8 is a word of encouragement by saying, guys, it's a matter of the heart, doing the right thing. Um, if, like it says in the New Testament, if, if we have it within our ability to do good and we don't do it, then how does the love of Christ dwell in us? We are known, the old song said, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So these are matters of the heart we're talking about here, and this is how um, chapter eight is divided in two sections. Verse 17 is the last part of this section here. And um, as we look at verses 18 through 23, um, we now jump from the local encouragement to Israel's future. And I want you to get sensitive to this because it's going to build to a crescendo by the time we get to the end of Zechariah. So, verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grab onto the sleeve of a Jewish man and say, can we go with you? For we have heard that God is with you. Now let me contrast that to the anti-Semitism that's going on in the world today. Every day I read something more about it. It's getting more 
more severe. And, but he says there's a day coming. Um, you may be despised for a season, but as he talks about their now future, um, let me have you turn to Isaiah chapter 45 at this point, where it talks about this again. 45 verse 14. Isaiah is saying it a little bit differently. And what we have in view, we will read verse 14. Thus says the Lord God, the labor of Egypt and the merchants of Cush and the Sabians, men of statute, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is with you and there is no other, there is no other God. So Isaiah is basically saying the same thing. You can go back to um, um, Zechariah and as we finish chapter eight, do this quick overview because I missed it. So when we jumped right into nine, um, the idea here is instead of anti-Semitism that exists greatly today, people are going to be wanting to be known that the God of Israel is a God that is God, period. And the world will know it, and they will come up and grab you by the sleeve. Can I go with you? Can I go to Jerusalem with you? Because your God is God. And that's pretty much... Zechariah wanting to encourage a discouraged people when they didn't know how bright their future is. Now, unfortunately, um, but we'll be able to see it tonight, there are several events that have to happen before the kingdom age can come in. And there's going to be a very, very difficult time called the time of Jacob's trouble where they have to come to a a realization who their Messiah really is. And it will be a breaking process, and we'll get into that. But um, we already did nine, so now I'm going to have you jump over to chapter 10. And actually, um, the first verse here is talking about the latter rain, and I think is probably better suited to be in uh, chapter 9, and my personal feeling is um, it should, verse 2 should be the first chap verse here, because what we're talking about um, here, what we've seen in chapter 9 in the future deliverance of both the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, how God is going to use them in the future when they will serve actually as priests. Uh, to the Gentile nations of the world, uh, there are those who interpret chapter 10 as a continuation of chapter 9. Some very fine Bible expositors feel that only the first verse should be long to, also belong to chapter 9. I, I, I agree with that assessment. And there's really two ways that you can interpret this first verse. So let's read chapter 10. Uh, Verse one, he says, ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds 
and he will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. So chapter 10 um, is talking about, in the last verse here, oh, how great is thy goodness and and how great is their beauty. Grain shall make the young man thrive and new wine the young woman. It's um, an uplifting, encouraging statement that he's making. And I think the continuing following thought goes into this whole idea of rain. Let me just talk on a personal level about what water means to Israel. Um, There you have, they're reproducing um, water from the Dead Sea by being able to take the salt out of the water so that they can use it for irrigation. The main water source in Israel is um, the Sea of Galilee, and out of the Sea of Galilee runs the Jordan River. As it leaves, it's pretty wide, and it's moving pretty quick. And it goes all the way down what we call the Jordan Valley, and by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, because the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, they have taken so much of the water from the Jordan for the purpose of irrigation. And they're always looking for more water. So what the Lord is saying here is actually literal rain. It says there will be, um, in, in Israel they have uh, the rain in the fall and the spring. I was, um, was on the news just this week because of how hot it's been in Israel this summer. It's been real, real hot. And now they've been having fires because it's so dry. Um, when I was talking to Zev, our guide, when he called, he was telling me about just how hot it is, the fires that they're having. Rain and water is absolutely vital uh, for Israel's survival. And so what the Lord is saying here that this verse here I take very, very literally as being literal rain. That when they come back into the land, if you're taking notes, Ezekiel 36, it talks about the land that was once desolate will look like the Garden of Eden. Well, do you know that Israel supplies one quarter of the fruit to all of Europe? Size of New Jersey. But they've perfected this irrigation system to that point where they're able actually to export uh, uh, their fruits and their vegetables. They actually send tulips to Holland, if you can believe that one. (laughs) And um, they have whole kibbutzes. I remember visiting a rose kibbutz uh, many, many years ago. All the kibbutzes had some sort of identity that, that they worked for. Some were dairy, some were for tourism. And I remember going to this one place where every girl on the bus got a dozen red roses because that kibbutz was there for growing roses. That's just what they did. So all the girls got on, the, on our bus got a whole dozen roses. And um, this whole idea of uh, the importance of water here, the Lord is saying, I'm going to make it rain again. Uh, I've told this story a hundred times about Mark Twain visiting Israel in the 1800s. And he said, I don't know what all the hype is about. Nothing there but rocks. All I see is goats eating rocks. There's no grass. There's no foliage. 
So just since they've been coming back into the land, the Lord is saying when I bring them back, it's gonna be like the Garden of Eden again. And if you want back scriptures on that, go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 and 37 is about the regathering of the people back into the land of Israel. If you want the biggest miracle of our time, it is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. No nation has ever been completely um, wiped out and dispersed into all the world and then come back and become a nation again. Only Israel. I think we were talking about the Philistines on Sunday and the um, cities of Ekron and Ashkelon and Gaza, the five major ones. Well, when, when um, um, there's no such thing as a Philistine today. And uh, they, they see, they're assimilated into whatever culture they get, get into. Israel is the exception. They're the only country that's been completely dispersed, but yet has not only come back, but the Bible says they will once again speak their own language. They didn't even speak Hebrew in Jesus' day. Well, some of the Orthodox leaders did, but Aramaic was, was the language. But today, if you go to Israel, well, it's Shalom. And if it's the Sabbath, then it's Shabbat Shalom. And if you want to say thank you, you say toda. And um, they speak, um, be, well, I can't get too sidetracked on that. Let's get back. I've only got through one verse in chapter 10, and I've got to get it through 11. But this is a literal talking about when they come back that uh, there will be the fall and spring rains, and um, it'll, it'll look like the Garden of Eden again, Israel Parts of it are absolutely gorgeous. Verse two. Now, beginning with verse two, we have a turning back to the subject of judgment. Although God intends to strengthen them for the last days and intends to bring them into the millennium, there are certain things which are radically wrong in their midst. He immediately puts his finger down on what's wrong in Israel, the thing which was really causing the trouble and the nation was idolatry. Well, what do you mean by idolatry? Look at verse two and three here. It says, for the idols speak delusions. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. And my anger is kindled against the shepherds. This, the shepherds here would have been the prophets. Why? Because basically they were getting into the occult. They were, they were um, um, having seances and invoking demonic spirits. And when it talks about um, delusions and false dreams, um, this is what's being made reference to it's because of the false prophets getting into this and therefore corrupting the people as they look towards these false shepherds. And he says, I will punish the goat herds for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and make them as a royal uh, horse in 
the battle. So as we look at verse four of this one here, let's go to Isaiah, let me read verse four. We need to read verse four again. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent pig, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. Okay, let's just deal with verse four. We're talking about from him comes the cornerstone. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28, and uh, draw your attention to verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, Peter picks up on this, and if you're taking notes, in 1 Peter 2.6, Peter quotes this in his epistle, and he makes it clear that the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Uh, Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Peter is um, uh, taking this this verse here, and well, let's, let's go there. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. This is it in my notes, I'm doing it off the top of my head, but it might be chapter 20. It is chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. What we have here in Luke 20 is, beginning with verse 9, the parable of the vineyard owner. And the idea of, the, of, of it is, well, let's just read it. Pick it up, verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He's talking about the prophets that God sent to Israel like Jeremiah, who they did not want to listen to. And they actually threw him into a pit and they did beat him up. Verse 11, again, so he sent another servant and they beat him up also treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. The Lord was looking for fruit. And we talk about fruit, we're talking about not outward actions, but again, the heart. What he said he wanted at the end of that last chapter. I want you to do, do right by your neighbor. If you can help, help. Do that which is right. But they weren't doing it. That was the fruit that he was looking for. And again, he sent a third and wounded him and cast him out, Then the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. This is a picture of Jesus. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, okay, so this is what happened. Um, Jesus was killed, and uh, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
at judgment time. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and the vineyard uh, to others. Now, the Pharisees that were listening to this all of a sudden pick up, hey, he's talking about us. And then when they asked the, he asked the hypothetical question, what do you think when the Lord comes back, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to destroy those um, that destroyed him. And when they heard this, they said, certainly not. And he looked at them and said, he said, okay, what then is that that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is what Zechariah is referring to. And here, here's one of two, there's only two kinds of people in the world. And it's all summed up in verse 18, talking about the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. You can have one of two relationships with him. Whoever falls on a stone will be broken. Most of us here that have come to know the Lord probably went through some difficult times. And say, I like to say, we were so far down we finally looked up. That's being broken. The Lord says, a broken and a contrite spirit I will not despise. It's pride, that's the problem. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That makes me think of Daniel and the stone that was cut without hands came in smiting the image, crushing it completely in judgment. And so here's one of two options that includes everybody in the world. You can hear the gospel that you're a sinner that needs to repent and in your heart you know that and you can be broken and fall on a cornerstone and you'll be saved. Or you can say just the opposite and um, rebel. Well, what's gonna happen is that you'll have your day in court and you'll be able to state your case about all the good things you think you've done or whatever, and you will be judged according to your works. All right, that's not in my notes, but I wanted to point out here, let's go back to Zechariah, that when it talks about this cornerstone in verse four, eight, nine, 10, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bowl, from him every ruler together. Now in verse five, um, it's getting into this period of time that we call the great tribulation. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. This refers to that very dark period of time during the tribulation. God is going to undertake for his people and enable them to go through it because at the close of that period of time, we have the second coming of Jesus Christ. But before the Lord can come back, um, the Lord, we talked about it, we're in Revelation, the the sealing of the 144,000. We'll be talking about the two witnesses this Sunday. And um, we have in verse five here this period of time that they're going to have to go go through. And then he says in verse, uh, let's go six through eight, 
I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them. For I, I like the terminology that the Lord uses them. And, and I will redeem them, for they shall increase as they once increased. So in these verses, uh, six through eight, it, it talks about, uh, again, now going uh, through the tribulation period back into the kingdom age. And nine through the rest of this chapter um, um, is also talking about the kingdom age. Verse nine through 12. I will sow them among the peoples and they shall remember me in far countries. Now we're not, we're not talking about just Babylon. So we're not talking about this, the return. We're talking about something future where they're gathered from the nations of the world. Breaking news, Netanyahu yesterday in one day said the Ethiopian Jews can come back starting today. And I got a picture at home of these four uh, Ethiopian um, Jewish girls holding their Israeli flags and happy and he made it happen in one day. He just pulled the trigger. He says, I want them back and I want them back now. So coming back from the nations, plural, and many of them, of course, of course, from Russia. And I will sow them among the people and they shall remember me in their far countries and they shall live together with their children and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I'll bring them back from the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them he shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea and the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord so they will walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Uh, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Give you a moment to get there. Jeremiah 23. Look at verse 7 and 8. And notice that the language reflects God's um, deliverance of Israel from Egypt the first time he returned them to the promised land. But when he regathers them in the future, it will be even greater miracle, so much so, and now we're in Jeremiah, that Jeremiah says, if you're in chapter 23, let's look at verses seven and eight. Therefore behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that there shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all their countries where I have driven them. Again, 
um, everybody knows that they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt. And it was by these ten mighty miracles. And basically, Jeremiah is saying, that's nothing. That was just Egypt. When he does it the second time, it's going to be from all the nations of the world, and they're going to come back to the land of Israel, and they shall dwell in their own land. Verse 8. And by golly, if we didn't make it to to, uh, chapter 11, let's head there. I know what you're thinking. Dwight's thinking he's going to go through three chapters. That's not going to happen. Come on, admit it. (laughs) We're going to make it. Um, I really wanted to get to chapter 11 because it really ties in in a wonderful way the Old and the New Testament. And one of the, well, let's just, let's just dive right in. Uh, verses, let's go through one through seven. <clears throat> Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedars have fallen. Because the mighty trees are ruined, wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forests have come down. There's a sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is a sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. Thus says the Lord God, feed the flock for slaughter. I'll come back and explain that in just a bit here. Um, Whose owners slaughter them, and they feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, because now I'm rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack attack the land, and I will no longer deliver them from their hand. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, one I called beauty, and the other I called bonds, and I fed them the flock. What we have uh, in these verses here is Jesus said, because you did not know the time of my coming. They could not rationalize a suffering Messiah and one who would reign as king of kings. They couldn't rationalize it. And so they only have one coming and it's only the Messiah as King of kings and Lord of lords. What they didn't see is Isaiah 53, that he would be bruised for you and I, that it pleased the Father to afflict him and he laid our iniquity upon him. That is very hard for Orthodox Jewish people to wrap their head around. That the Messiah would be bruised, that our iniquity would be placed upon him. And so as they wrestled through that, what we have in view here, because they didn't, again, this is for taking notes, Luke 19. He says, because you did not know the time of your coming, implying what? They should have known. Because Daniel 9 tells us to the day when he would come. They should have known, he says, but because you didn't know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be surrounded by your enemies, and um, they're going to destroy this temple. 
There will not be one stone left upon another. So complete will the destruction be. The Roman general Titus in 70 AD did exactly that. He came to Jerusalem, surrounded it, and this is just what I found today. Right next to where they pushed over these stones, they're always doing archaeological digs, they're always sifting, the archaeologists are. You know what they found? They found a weight. Before they used a shekel, they actually had a weight that was exactly the weight that would be equivalent. So when you went to buy and sell, you would have scales. And you would take your weight and put it on there. Well, they've seen weights, but not one that was 2,600 years old from the first temple. Where did they find it? They were sifting right below where these stones were. And then you can go online and Google it and actually see a picture of it. And they'll explain why. And it's how they got it to the exact precise measurement. Um, and that's how you did commerce before there was the coin that was invented. Uh, you, you used your, whatever you were buying or selling was determined by putting it on a scale. And if you were an honest shopkeeper, then you had honest weights. If you weren't, you had ones that weren't. And so that, 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 that was discovered and when I woke up this morning was just checking my emails this was breaking news in Israel that they just found this weight equaling two shekels from 2,600 years ago. And that, that was today. All right. Um, now, back to our, our verse here. I left off in verse... Okay, let's go to 8 and 9. Uh, verse 9, that I said, I will not feed you let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left uh, with each other's perish. And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant. Now this is important, catch this. I will break the covenant which I made with all these people. So it was broken on that day, thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that was the word of the Lord. Now, if you know anything about God's promises, you know that he makes covenants. And his covenant that he made is an everlasting covenant that this kingdom is actually going to come. So that there are some who read what I just read here, that I might break my covenant which I made with all the people. What does God mean when he said he will break his covenant? Hasn't he repeatedly told us that he will never break his covenant? Well, we need to understand the difference between a conditional and unconditional covenant. I hope you're listening carefully to get this. God never breaks an unconditional covenant, but a conditional covenant depends upon a response on the human side. If you do this, then I promise to do this. That's a, that is a, a conditional covenant. The covenant of the verse before us is conditional. God promised protection of Israel against their enemies depending upon Israel's obedience to him. When they disobeyed him, he followed through by removing his protection. It is in this sense that he broke the covenant. So when we read this here, we're gonna go from a completely new direction. Everything is gonna change from this point on. 
And basically what he's talking about uh, here, again, is what happened uh, when um, Jerusalem um, was taken by the Roman legions in 70 AD. Now, 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. All right, this is a prophecy. It has a very literal fulfillment, and you need to turn to Matthew chapter 26. What we have here is the time that Judas Iscariot betrays the Lord. Picking up in verse 14, Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. And he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Now he's talking about betraying Jesus. What's it worth to you? How much money will you give me? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 11. But then it even gets more specific. And if you go to, to just turn the page to Matthew 27, picking it up in verse three, we have more information. After Judas did what he did, I don't think he repented. Everybody here, here knows that people who have repented, but they're not really sorry. They say they're sorry, but they're not really sorry. Um, they knew they did something wrong, but there's not really a heartfelt repentance. That's the case here with Judas. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, and he brought, <coughs> excuse me, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. All right, in 26, he says, if I betray him, what's it worth to you? 30 pieces of silver. And now Jesus is condemned and he realizes he's the one responsible for this happening. So what he does is he goes back to these guys and he says in verse four, see, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, these are the people that gave him the money, what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, we could care less. It's your problem, Judas, not ours. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went out and he hung himself. He takes money, he takes it back to these guys, and they said, it's your problem, not ours. So he throws it. Now the problem is this is blood money. And here's a hypocrisy of the religious leadership at this time. But the chief priest, verse six, took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood. This is blood money. We can't put this money in the temple. And they took counsel and they said, to them, well, what are we gonna do with this stuff? And 
they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in, or the poor. So at this time, I'd like you to turn with me to, now let's read down to verse 10. Therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. We'll be able to wind this up. Jeremiah chapter 18, picking it up in verses, verses one through six. The sign of a potter. Everybody here knows what, throwing a, pot, a potter's wheel is, right? And then forming the clay as the wheel spins around. Verse one, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred. In other words, it could have been too heavy, too wet. You have to have the right texture that's fashionable. And if it's not, then it's marred. And in the hand of the potter, so he made it again in another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay in the potter's hands so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now he's making an application. He's basically saying what um, the prophecy, let's go back and look at Zechariah as we read this final verse here in in, um, 11. And the Lord said to me, throw it to, to the potter after the 30 pieces of silver is paid, Throw it to the potter, the pricely price on which they, they took me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. Well, when they got it, what did they do? Well, in the backyard of a potter's house, he has a lot of broken pieces of pottery because they wouldn't allow themselves to be formed. What Jeremiah is making the application He says, just as the clay, by the way, what are we made out of? That's what we're made out of. And he's wanting to, according to Jeremiah, he says, I want to fashion you. I want to shape you. I want to mold you. But you got to be pliable. Can I not, the potter, do with the clay whatever I want to, O house of Israel? Well, that all depends because we all have free will. The application here is the Lord seeks to fashion us into his image from glory to glory. He wants to mold you and shape you. Um, But we have um, and we must yield to the potters molding us. We need to be flexible. And and if not, if we're stubborn and say, no, I'm not going to be molded into your image. I'm going to do my own thing. Then you're marred. And the vessel that he wants to work with, he can't work with you. So where does it end up? Out in the back, 
a piece of broken pottery. And I could really get sidetracked here because that's basically the condition of those that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. As he's trying to fashion them, he wants to mold them, but they won't allow that process to take place. So they end up in the potter's field and uh, as pieces of, of broken clay. And if we take anything out of our study tonight, these two verses, 12 and 13, are um, so applicable to what God wants to do, but he will never override your free will. He is saying, this is what I want to do. I want to form you and shape you. But it's going to be the narrow way. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. The last part of this is switching gears again, our last couple verses. Verses um, 14 through the end, let's just read it. Then I will cut in two my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Verse 14, let me just explain this. The chopping up of the second staff indicates the complete severance of all relationship between the shepherd and Israel, his flock. It is as if God is saying, when you sold me, when you turned me over into the hands of the Gentiles to be crucified, I broke my covenant. Titus the Roman will soon be here and you'll be scattered throughout the world their Messiah came, the nation rejected him. That's John 1.11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And the Jewish people, many of them are still scattered to this day. And then verse 15 to the end, and the Lord said to me, next take up for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Your Bible might say idle shepherd, but actually it's a worthless shepherd. Now, What we have in view here is yet future. I believe this man is alive today. We call him the Antichrist. So look how much we've, just in this one chapter 11, we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, We talked about um, the prophecy of Judas and the betrayal for the 30 pieces of silver for for a potter's field. And now we're switching gears again, going to something that, Um, it's going to happen very quickly as far as I could tell. He says, next take up for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. He's He's talking here about the Antichrist. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken. Why did Jesus come? Isaiah tells us to heal the brokenhearted. This is just the opposite. This Antichrist, um, does not heal those that are broken, nor feeds those that are still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and eat their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Why tell us that? Here we're talking about the Antichrist and he starts out and um, I believe the next event, of course, is the rapture of the church. As a result of that, I believe the world will be willing to listen to anybody who's got any answers at all. 
And um, if for any reason you're left behind, the first thing that you're going to see is Daniel 9.27 being fulfilled. A peace treaty for seven years with Israel. That's what Daniel 9.27 says, that he'll come and make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years, but in the middle of it, he's going to break it and go into the temple and declare himself that he is God. But that's not how he starts out. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, remember when we opened the first seal, the rider on the white horse? It was the Antichrist coming out. What was he doing? Conquering. Also, it'll be a time of temporary peace and prosperity, but only for a season. Um, Let's close by going to Revelation chapter 12. And what I'm going to tell you now is my opinion, okay? And the way I see it. I scratch my head and ask the question, why would Zechariah tell us that his right eye is no longer and his right arm is completely withered? Something had to happen to him. And so what I think happened to him, as we read here in chapter 13, um, talking about the Antichrist, it said, I saw one of his heads and it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and the world marveled and followed after the beast. The Antichrist is going to be assassinated, and for all sake and purposes, um, he's dead. Now, here's just my two cents worth, or two shekels worth in this case tonight. And that is, I actually think that the head wound is going to affect the eye that can't see out of. It's also going to paralyze part of his arm. That's the only thing I can can come up with that's why Zachariah would give us that bit of information. I could be completely wrong. The fact is, the world thinks he's died, and I think he did, and it's a, a resurrection or a false resurrection that the Lord allows. And he was granted to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and people. He's ruler over the whole world, and this is what Satan has always wanted. And the Lord's going to give him his day. He's going to have his time. He's got three and a half years in which um, to do it. So, uh, maybe two or three minutes over, but not too bad. Eight, ten, and eleven. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, so many dots to connect between the Old and the New Testament as we go through Zechariah. And we thank you, Lord, that you lay it out in such detail, seeing the fulfillment of the price that you were betrayed for and um, just the implications for all of us here Lord, keep us flexible. Keep us pliable. Help us not be that one that refuses to fall upon the cornerstone and be broken and have salvation. Protect us from our own pride where we think there's some way that we can make it and not be broken on the cornerstone. So we thank you for our study in Zechariah and as we go tonight, we just pray that Um, We go before the rest of our evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.